Thank you for tuning in to the Preaching Workshop podcast. If you have any questions or want to look at any kind of the materials that we had for the day, you can head over to graymere.com slash pwpodcast, and you'll find links to PowerPoints and other materials from the day. This is from 2021, the Psalms and Our Assembly, Psalms in Christian Worship by Justin Rogers. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning. Good to see everybody here. It is good to be out of the house, I think, after a week of being snowed in, at least in our area, and I assume in this area as well. Uh, So you're considering the book of Psalms today. I think that's a great topic. It's a great topic, especially for a Christian audience, because the Psalms are, without exaggeration, the most influential single book of the Bible on Christian tradition. Uh, In fact, if you count the number of direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament, about a quarter of them, almost exactly 25%, are from the book of Psalms. Uh, Not only that, but if you trace the history of the Psalms after the New Testament, uh, there are more Christian commentaries on the book of Psalms than there are any other book of the Bible. Uh, There are more homilies on the book of Psalms than most books of the Bible from the first five centuries or so of Christianity. And some of you probably remember this reality. Uh, The country churches especially used to have these little pew Bibles, the New Testament and Psalms. Remember that? I've always wondered why that was. Some of you may actually know the answer, and if you do, I'd like to hear what it is, why the Psalms were selected as the only Old Testament book. I think it's because, this is my best guess, I have no information, but my best guess is because they said if you could have just one book of the Old Testament that you read, it ought to be the book of Psalms. And if that is the answer, then it's pretty enlightening for us because it teaches us that the book of Psalms of all the Old Testament books most correlates with what is taught in the New Testament. And so you know that the book of Psalms is a very important book, very popular book. In more recent years, uh, it has been the case that the rise in the interest of spiritual disciplines and that kind of thing has featured the study of the book of Psalms more intentionally than maybe ever before. And so it's a really, really important book to understand just from the point of view of Christian uh, tradition. But what we're going to talk about is how the book of Psalms may have impacted the worship of the early church. This is going to be mostly historical uh, in uh, tone, I guess. So if you don't like uh, the history of the Bible, reception history of the Bible, then um, you may not uh, very much like what I'm going to do in the next few minutes. But in any case, I want to point out a couple of things that I think are of interest as we begin. And that is that a lot of how we assume the book of Psalms influenced early Christianity is based on assumption. It's based on an assumption that is also itself based on an assumption. For example, you'll find statements like this in a lot of uh, books that are introducing the Old Testament. You'll find people saying, well, the book of Psalms really served as the worship manual of ancient Israel. Anybody ever read anything like that, like in a commentary or something? Or it it served as the hymn book of ancient Israel. You'll read these kinds of statements, and and this is not just in like homiletic literature. This is in high-level academic literature some of the time where you will read things like that. The problem with statements like that is they can be substantiated with no evidence that we have. Uh, We don't have any kind of evidence of how the Psalms actually functioned in the real life of the first temple cult. And so that's a bit of a problem, uh, I suppose, in determining how we are to uh, understand the usage of the Psalms. The second thing that you'll see, another assumption that's often found, 
is that the Psalms served as the hymn book of the early church. How many people have heard that kind of thing? Now, it makes sense because we have songbooks. They had songbooks, right? I mean, how did they know what songs to sing without having a book? This is before the invention of PowerPoint. And so it must be that they used the Psalms as their hymn book. The problem with that, of course, is that the Psalms were being read by most early Christians in what language? This is really not supposed to be a difficult question. Most early Christians probably spoke Greek. Now, the book of Psalms is written in what language originally? Hebrew. And so, in order to be read in Greek, the Psalms will have to be translated. Now, it is no surprise, many of you already know this, the book of Psalms, when they were translated from Hebrew into Greek, were not translated into Greek poetic meter. And therefore, they did not classify as Greek music, and therefore could not be performed by anyone who was familiar with Greek music. And so, it makes no sense at all that they would have used the book of Psalms as a hymn book, since the book of Psalms did not match what they called music. All right? Now, what does that mean? That means that the Psalms primarily functioned for the early Christians in exactly the same way that the rest of the Old Testament functioned. The same way the book of Deuteronomy functioned, the same way the book of Jeremiah, the book of Psalms, uh, or excuse me, the book of Isaiah, these books function. They were treated as inspired scripture that contained information relevant to the career of Jesus of Nazareth and to the early church. And so the book of Psalms, by the time we get to Christian history, was received really as inspired scripture, not as hymnic or as musical material at all. And that's what we're going to try to establish uh, today, uh, Lord willing. All right, but before we can do that, we need to start with how the books uh, of Psalms, how the book of Psalms, if you want to call it that way, it actually consists of five different books, as I'm sure you know, these are usually marked in English translations, but how the books of Psalms were used in their original context. We have two kinds of evidence with almost every question of this kind. We have internal evidence and external evidence. I'm having a hard time getting this thing to advance. Uh, so if I say next slide, will you be able to advance? This thing. Okay. All right. Thanks. Um, the first thing that... Wait, I'm already way behind. Okay. Here we go. So internal evidence, as you know, a lot of the Psalms contain superscriptions. In fact, all but about 34 of the Psalms have superscriptions. These generally tell us something about what the Psalm was supposed to be used for, although to be honest, a lot of these are more confusing than helpful to us because we don't understand the terminology anymore. Uh, and we could talk a lot about that and wouldn't learn a thing. So let's just bypass that conversation. Um, but of the 150 Psalms that are in the Hebrew Bible, only 34 of them, according to their superscriptions, are associated in any way with public worship. And so one of the assumptions that people often make is that the book of Psalms functioned to direct the worship of the Levitical singers in the temple cult, right? People have heard this. The problem is, if you pay attention to what the Psalms claim for themselves, the overwhelming majority of them do no such thing. They don't claim to be used for public worship at all. And of course, I'm sure Jordan talked about uh, in the last session uh, the genres of psalms and how a number of the psalms by genre were identified specifically as personal in nature. This is devotional literature, not performance literature. This is not intended for a community. Not to mention, there's no such thing as congregational singing in the Old Testament, right? The Levit Levitical singers were the only ones really authorized to perform, uh, especially at the context of the temple, 
but what they performed, we of course do not know. We have these statements made in, in the Bible. These are a couple of examples from the Chronicles where David uh, tries to arrange for the worship of the temple after his death, uh, appointing certain people to play certain musical instruments and do certain things. But we have no idea what it was that they performed. We have no biblical testimony that they were performing the Psalms. And so we're sort of out of evidence when it comes to how exactly the Psalms were used, even in the context of the first temple. So all these statements that you might read in encyclopedia and in commentaries about the Psalms functioned as the basic worship manual for the temple, these cannot be substantiated with any sort of evidence, at least that I know. And if you have any counter evidence, I would much appreciate it. And so the kind of foundation that we're kind of leading to here is that the early Christians used the book of Psalms as their hymn book. Why did they do that? Well, because that's how the Psalms were used originally. Well, so far what we've seen is we don't really have the proof that that is how the Psalms were used originally. And so what happens in between? As we know, everything important uh, that occurs in the New Testament that is not found in the Old Testament occurs in between the Testaments. That blank page in the Protestant Bibles that represents 400 years or so, it's sometimes called the 400 years of silence, but the truth is more Jewish literature was composed during that period of time than at any other point in all of Jewish history. So we have a, a better sense of what was going on in the intertestamental period than we do what was going on in any other period of Jewish history. And so when we look at how the Psalms were used in Second Temple Jewish worship, again, we find that there are a lot of assumptions. People say, well, they must have taken the Psalms and used them for their singing in the synagogues. I used to hear that a lot. Or that the Psalms were used to direct the worship of the synagogues whenever people were not near the temple. The problem is, again, there is no evidence. Not only that the Psalms were not sung outside of the temple, but that they actually sung as a form of worship. See, we take it for granted today that if you worship God, you are going to sing songs in doing so. It might come as a surprise that in other cultures, that is not something that they assume to be central to worship. Singing may not have anything to do with how they view worship. Uh, we've already talked about in biblical Israel how that was the case, how the worship of the temple was largely confined to the officiants who were from a single tribe, and we presume, based on the fact that they probably chose people on the basis of talent, uh, that not all the Levites were involved in performing. And so you have a small fraction of one family of the whole nation of Israel actually singing. The nation as a whole in the Old Testament would not have considered singing a form of their ob uh, obligatory worship. And the same is true when we turn to the synagogues. Apparently, there is no singing outside of the synagogues in... Yeah, I can't get this thing to work. There we go. I'm just going to load them up like that. Okay, so there are three reasons, perhaps, why this is the case, that the psalms were not sung, apparently, by anyone outside, uh, of, uh, out, outside of the temple. First of all is the biblical authority wasn't there. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us, but ancient peoples really thought highly of biblical authority. They tended to want to do things or not do things based on what the Bible said. Well, the Bible did not authorize the singing of the Psalms, at least for regular Israelites. So maybe that's one reason they didn't do it. We've already mentioned the literary style. 
Once the Psalms are no longer in Hebrew, once they're translated into another language, they don't fit the canons of music. It was thought more important to translate the very words in a more or less woodenly literal sense than it was to actually communicate uh, the uh, musicality of the Psalms, if they even thought that was necessary. And then third is the tradition itself. The book of Psalms was received already in the intertestamental period as a scripture, not as a musical handbook. In fact, in one text known as 4QMMT, if you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you might know that text. It's an abbreviation for a longer title, Miksat Ma'asei HaTorah, which the reason they put it in Hebrew is because in English it roughly translates to some stuff about the Torah. It doesn't sound very smart. Uh, so they just leave it in Hebrew so it sounds a little smarter to the academic crowd. But it, this text refers to, quote, the law, the prophets, and David. Now, if you're familiar with how the Hebrews divide the Old Testament today, which they call the Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. They have a threefold division. Now, we do the books of law, poetry, or law history, poetry, prophecy, right? They had a different division that we, that we can trace back to at least the second century BCE, and this is one of the first texts that attests to that. And so what is David doing as representing the third part of the canon? Well, when we look at what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, you'll remember Jesus says that all may be fulfilled that is written in the law, the prophets, and the, anybody remember what he says? The Psalms. Well, surely they're referring to the same thing. Jesus, as a Jew, inherited this trifold division of the Hebrew Bible where the law represented the first part, the law of Moses, the prophets, now the prophets include books like Joshua and First and Second Kings, things we wouldn't consider prophets, but they did and still do. And then you have the writings or the Psalms, which represents the first and the largest book in that collection. So we can start, this is relevant not only for the canon debate, at what point did the Old Testament become canonical, it's also relevant for helping us understand how people actually viewed the book of Psalms. In other words, it wasn't viewed as something that was different from any other book of Scripture. It was just as authoritative as Deuteronomy. It was just as authoritative as Isaiah uh, in these other popular books. Genesis usually is one of the more popular ones as well. And so that's a very important, I think, uh, observation to make, that by the time we get at least to the second century, now, the good thing about it is the Dead Sea Scrolls are written by people who speak Hebrew. And so even though they theoretically could have sung the Psalms in Hebrew, they weren't. They were treating them as proof texts for their own self-identity. Whereas in the case of Jesus, certainly in the Gospels written by people who speak primarily Greek by the time we get to the Gospel of Luke, uh, that same tradition holds. But then the last thing, and, and things that people often find really shocking, is that the ancient synagogue apparently didn't sing at all. Now, you're probably, if you're like me, if you've done some research on music in the early church before, you've read statements like this. Now, this is not some kind of uh, crackerjack source. This is from the new Oxford History of Music. Oxford doesn't publish garbage, right? It usually publishes academically credible stuff. So here's what this author says about singing, okay? In the new Oxford History of Music, Egon Bellitz is his name. It was from the synagogue that the early Christians took over 
the cantillation of lessons, the chanting of psalms, and the singing of hymns. Anybody ever read anything like that before? Yeah, sure. I think we all have read things like this several times. So where did the early Christians get their practice of singing? Well, we know that they didn't invent it because the early Christians didn't invent anything, if you read the academic literature. They were incapable of original thought. Everything they did came from somebody else, okay? And primarily, we think of either the Greco-Roman world or the Jewish synagogal background, right? And so here's how the logic goes, the way that the academics used to make it, at least, some still do, that, well, the early Christians worshipped with a cappella singing. We know that. That's a fact, well-established by thousands of sources. Well, where did they learn to do that? Well, we know that they borrowed everything else, you know, community meals, the idea of an assembly. I mean, even the word sunagoge means a gathering together. What does the word ekklesia mean? An assembly. I mean, the words are synonymous in Greek. Even the very terminology to describe themselves, they patterned after the Jewish synagogue. So it must be that the Jewish synagogue included singing, and it must be that that singing was a cappella, and it must be that that a cappella singing was of the Psalms. What? This is where it's really good when we're reading the academic literature to look for evidence, right? Stuff that actually relates to ancient sources rather than just modern ones. And so what we find whenever we try to determine, and this is how I actually stumbled across this whole topic, is I was looking for confirmation of how singing functioned in the ancient synagogue. And I became really, really frustrated because I couldn't find anything. Uh, Lee Levine wrote this book called The Ancient Synagogue, The First 1,000 Years. It's like 800 pages thick, and it's about that tall. It's an enormous book. There is not a single reference to singing anywhere in that book. And so I'm like, well, how can it be that all these other things that I'm, I'm reading are wrong? So I had a teacher who is an expert in Jewish liturgy. And so I just went to him and I said, hey, I'm having this problem. I'm trying to find, trying to track down information about singing in the ancient synagogue. And he just laughed. He said, ha, you've been reading music encyclopedias. I was like, yeah. And he said, there's no such thing as singing in the ancient synagogues. It's a modern scholarly invention. It doesn't exist. And so I began to kind of read more. And what I learned is that it was invented based on the analogy of the early church. Interestingly enough, Early Christianity, from all appearances, seems to have invented the practice of singing as a form of worshiping the Jewish God. It didn't exist prior to that outside of a very limited context in the temple. L.I. Rabinowitz once wrote these words, There can be no question that during the whole period of the Talmud, we're talking about much later than the New Testament here, with one exception, uh, and that's the Passover Hallel, the singing of certain psalms in the context of the Passover in, in, in one's home, the Psalms had no place at all in public worship. The public liturgy during the period of the Talmud was completely psalm-less. In other words, we have no evidence that the Psalms actually functioned to direct anybody in how they ought to worship. Instead, they directed people in how they are to think to think about the prophecy of God and his setting forth of a historical plan of salvation, thinking about the crucifixion of Jesus, thinking about the life of the early church. That's how the book of Psalms functioned, both during the time of the New Testament and even in the centuries leading up to it. I find that very fascinating. And so when we turn finally to the, the last step in the process here, all right, the Psalms in early Christian worship. How did the book of Psalms actually function? 
Well, a number of you are already ahead of me here, and you've already jotted this question down, wondering what I'm going to say about these passages, right? These are probably the best-known passages that describe singing in the New Testament, that we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it will be true that you can find a number of commentaries who will say, well, really, what this means, those are three different categories of hymns the early Christians have. And what, what, what the psalms are, those are biblical psalms which were sung by the earliest Christians. You've read this in the commentaries. And the hymns, well, we have no idea what those were. The spiritual songs were psalms that might have been inspired by some kind of spiritual gift. And that's what they were. But again, you'll find no evidence cited to support this. It's basically just being invented uh, on the page of the commentator. The truth is, we don't really know what these words mean. We actually have early Christian commentaries that discuss these words. These are written by people who actually spoke Greek as their daily language, and they say, we don't know what this is talking about. And so it may well be that it's like we have these churchisms, you know, we're glad to see each and every one of you here, when each and every mean the same thing, but we still say both words. They're obligatory, I think, when you make announcements. Uh, or my favorite one, guide, garden, direct us, right? What, now, what if you were to exegete that? Or to guide means to, and then you give the definition, preferably in Greek, and then to guard, and then direct. Well, we don't really mean those things separately, right? We basically mean we want God to protect us, to take care of us. And we all understand that because we're accultured to this kind of language. Okay, well, what if it were the case that Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs function in exactly the same way? And there is no distinction met in these terms. Now, I don't really know if that's the case or not. Um, it's not really my purpose to try to indicate what is meant by those terms. I'm just focused on the word psalm. Because when we see the word psalm as Bible readers, we're programmed to think, well, that can only refer to the biblical book of Psalms, right? Uh, that's what I would certainly think if I hadn't you know, studied this before. The problem is we can't think the way we would think. We have to think the way Paul's audience would have thought, and what we know about Paul's audience is the word psalmos in Greek to them was a word that was used everywhere. In fact, it doesn't necessarily even have a religious connotation in Greek. This is a word used over 10,000 times in ancient Greek. It certainly isn't something that for them would have automatically required association with biblical psalms. Secondly, and I've already mentioned this, the psalms had to be manipulated into the canons of Greek music before they could be sung, and there is generally a very strong prohibition in ancient Christian literature against altering the text of Scripture in any way for any reason. To us, this doesn't bother us. We have some songs that more or less translate exactly the King James Version of biblical passages, right? We sing, come let us sing with joy to the Lord, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. That is a verbatim song that comes verbatim from one of the psalms. But the fact of the matter is, we don't really blame people who alter the words and content or edit out phrases and things in order to make them fit uh, the necessary number of syllables and whatnot that we have for music. In fact, uh, many times when we sing the words of some of the biblical psalms, we don't even realize that we're singing psalms. And our sense of poetic license leads us to say, you know what, it's okay if people want to manipulate Scripture to make it fit the way we sing. We're not bothered by it. I'm, I'm not bothered by that. I don't know. Maybe some of you after today will be, but I, I hope not. Uh, that's not my goal. But early Christians didn't do that sort of thing. 
it doesn't seem, at least not for the first several hundred years, they were very concerned about altering in any way the text of Scripture as they inherited it. And so it would not have been just a foregone conclusion, oh, well, they would have just edited it and making it into music. That's just not the sort of thing they did. And then the third, and I want you to turn in your Bibles here. I know we're talking mostly about historical investigation, but very few people really pay attention to this verse, and I I do understand why, but I think it's an important passage, especially in the context of this conversation. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, this is where the Apostle Paul, as you know, in chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, he's addressing the problem of spiritual gifts and, and what the, the Corinthians were doing, focusing too much on the miraculous gifts of the Spirit and not enough on the things that would last, right? And he says in, in chapter 14 and verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, so what kind of context are we talking about? This is a context of worship, right? When you come together, this signifies a common assembly, each one has a, what? A hymn. I'm reading from the ESV. I don't know if other versions have it differently. But each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now I want to go through this verse backwards, okay? And then he says, let all things be done for building up. An interpretation is what kind of gift? Based on my understanding, it's a miraculous gift, right? A tongue, speaking in another language, what kind of gift? Miraculous, I think. A revelation, miraculous. A lesson, now this is not a very specific term, but we're thinking probably of of the gift of prophecy here and the ability to preach a sermon that is divinely inspired, which we for sure know was a spiritual gift. Okay, so he mentions five things here, and four of them we know are miraculous in nature, provided for by the Spirit of God. How likely is it that the fifth one also would be the same? And so when each one has a hymn, perhaps the invention of early Christian songs was a miraculous gift provided by the Spirit of God, and just like a a sermon of prophecy, just like a a tongue and an interpretation, these were intended for the mutual, mutual edification of Christians. It could very well be, based on this passage, that early Christian singing was a spiritual act, and I mean spiritual with a capital S, and that these songs, which were taught by the Holy Spirit, were then recorded and transferred over to subsequent generations of Christians and continued uh, to be used in that fashion. Now, we don't have a lot in the New Testament to substantiate what I just said. I mean, this verse is pretty much it. Uh, We do have some passages people have referred to as early Christian hymns, and I'll talk about those in a moment. But the earliest piece of evidence that we have from an outsider who witnessed an early Christian worship service, a lot of you know this passage, it's from Pliny's letter to the Emperor Trajan, it's letter 1096. It is uh, interesting for Christian history on a number of fronts, but one of them is it includes the words of an informant a person who was a spy on behalf of Pliny, who was the governor, the Roman governor of Bithynia. And he goes to an early Christian worship service and he says, well, well, here's what they do. They meet before dawn, you know, so they're worshiping when the sun comes up. And then he says, and they sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. Now, two things about that that are interesting to me. Number one, that here is an outsider who has no previous experience with Christianity at all, 
And he was able to discern that what they were doing is singing hymns to Jesus as though he were divine. How did he learn that? Surely they weren't singing the biblical psalms. They wouldn't have made sense to him as an outsider. And so they were apparently singing psalms of their own composition, or at least of Christian composition of some sort at some point, whether they're invented by the community of Christians in Bithynia or an earlier generation of Christians, and passed down. I think about the way in which, you know, a new song can be taught at one youth rally, and in 12 months later, like, everybody knows it. These things spread pretty fast in the modern world, presuming they move a little slower in the ancient world. It wouldn't have taken long for songs to be spread around. You add to this another piece of evidence from Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius is uh, writing the early 4th century, first church historian, at least in any systematic way. And he says, quote, from the beginning, early Christians composed their own hymns. Now, I realize that Eusebius is a long time after the New Testament, and he says a lot of things that aren't necessarily trustworthy, right? But I don't think that we can just discount that evidence, especially uh, absent any other contradictory evidence. So what kind of hymns were they singing? Well, I don't know. We apparently don't have any clear examples, but we have some that have been suggested. You remember the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, where Paul says, Hey, listen, you guys are having major issues in the church. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it starts with hos in Greek, right? Who, although existing in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He he emptied himself. You know this passage, right? Many people have argued, and many people think, that was a fragment of an early Christian hymn. In fact, some scholars call it the Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ. I don't know if it is or it isn't. It's a possibility. Or what about Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20? This is a passage that talks about the the exalted nature of Jesus Christ and His role in creation as well as in sustaining everything that exists. Many people believe that too is a hymn. And then there are fragments of other passages that are much smaller. 1 Timothy 3.16, Hebrews 1.3. Passages like this that may well in fact be excerpts from early Christian songs. Now, what we can say is those passages are highly poetic, okay? What we cannot say for sure is that they were actually sung or performed in worship services, but they might have been. The very first example that we have of a for sure early Christian song is this. It's P. Oxy 1786, Papyrus Oxy Rhenchus 1786, and this is the very first early Christian song we have that has accompanying musical annotation which I don't know if you can see really well. I'll try to point it out here um, if, if you can see it. But where that red arrow is, you can see it's got these little marks with lines over it, and then you have things that look like whole notes here. This is their form of music. This dates from probably the early third century sometime. It's the first example we have, and it's not one of the psalms set to music. What does it say? Well, it's very fragmentary, and the scholar uh, Charles Cosgrove actually wrote a commentary on this little piece of uh, papyrus, Um, but roughly it translates like this. Together, all the eminent ones of God, and then it goes blank, night or day, let them be silent. Let the luminous stars not, and then it goes blank, 
Let the rushings of winds, the sources of all surging rivers cease, while we Him, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, let all the powers answer, Amen, Amen, strength, praise, and glory forever to God, the sole giver of all good things, Amen, Amen. Now, if you studied a little Greek, you could probably make out at least the amens here, right? There's an amen there, amen. There's power, strength, kratos, and there's some other words you could make out here. But that doesn't sound to me like any of the psalms that I know. In fact, it doesn't sound like all that good of a song to me in the first place. But <laughs> Some of you who are more musically talented might be able to make that into something that sounded a little more snappy. But this is a song that has been preserved from at least as far as we know, this is the first uh, uh, early Christian song that w- was for sure sung because it's accompanied with this musical annotation. So you can look that up and read more about that, I'm sure, if you'd like on your own. Okay, so the last question here, where did the early Christians learn to sing? Well, they didn't learn to sing from the synagogue because the synagogues didn't sing. Not only before the time of the New Testament, but long after the time of the New Testament. Singing was an innovation in the synagogue sometime in the Middle Ages, and that's not disputed. So they didn't learn it from the synagogues, despite what a lot of the encyclopedias say. They didn't learn it from the Psalms themselves, apparently, uh, because the Psalms, for a variety of reasons, were not even used that way by most First Temple Israelites, and certainly not by Second Temple Israelites. Uh, In fact, when the psalms were sung, it appears that only a few of them were sung, and only a few of them were sung by a few people in the nation of Israel. And so we're not talking about something that can apply generally here, probably, if we want to speak historically. All right, so where did they learn the custom of singing at all? Maybe they learned it from the Hallel. Now, there is some dispute about this. I want to make that clear. But Jesus, in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, it says that after the Last Supper, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now the question is, well, what kind of hymn were they singing? We don't know, to be sure, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know from the Mishnah, which uh, is redacted around 200 CE, I realize that's a considerable time after the life of Jesus, but we do realize that there was a custom of singing a hymn at the Passover and it was called the Hallel. It uh, consists of Psalm 113 to 118. And that is the only time we know from ancient history where Jews actually sang the words of the psalm in any context whatsoever. And they sung it in a domestic setting at the Passover, not in a congregational setting in a synagogue. But maybe, just maybe, that is an example of a place where early Christians not only sung, but they sung the psalms. And that passage, therefore, could be viewed as the impetus behind all early Christian singing. But that's not likely, because the early Christians apparently did not continue to observe the Passover or any other aspect of the Passover ritual, with the exception of what Jesus himself specifically identified out from the Passover ritual, right? When he took the bread and the wine and separated those two elements from everything else taking place at the Passover. So Jesus basically seems to have rejected the, the uh, obser- observance of the Passover uh, in general, focusing on those two elements specifically. Well, so if not there, then where? We haven't talked about this at, uh, very much. I could talk more about this, but there is a reference to a community of Jews known as the Therapeutae. Philo of Alexandria writes an entire treatise on these people, 
they live in a place outside of Alexandria, Egypt. They have this community on, on a lake called Lake Mariotis, and they do things like they sing congregational hymns, they read scripture, they have preachers, they have song leaders, they have choirs, these kinds of things. And so Eusebius, looking back over Philo's writings, said, well, there you have it. Those are the very first Christians in Egypt. The Therapeutae are the first Christians. Aha! The problem is he's off by about 35 years in terms of his chronology. So there may be some Jewish groups actually pretended to be the temple in community, and they did the kinds of things that might be done in the temple, only they did them in their communities. But as far as we know, the Therapeutae were not very influential. There are no splinter groups from them, so they appear to be quite isolated uh, in a limited geographical area. So it's unlikely that their practice influenced the entire Christian tradition. Um, so that's probably not likely either. Another example, or another possibility, would be that in the Greco-Roman world, singing to the gods was a form of worship, and it was pretty widely practiced. In fact, Plutarch uh, says, he's a second century Neoplatonist, he says, it is an act of piety to sing praises to the gods. Well, that sounds very much like how early Christians might have put it, and so it may be that it's learned from the Greco-Roman world, or it may be, as I've already suggested, that the Holy Spirit led early Christians to compose their own hymns and teach them to one another. And this would have served not only as a great exercise in community building, there are all kinds of sociological research on how singing leads to solidarity, but also it gives a great opportunity to sing words in memorable ways that have a way of teaching others. Isn't it the case that we're told to uh, teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, what if that was the very purpose of early Christian singing, to teach people the right way and to teach them against the wrong way? That would fulfill all of the biblical requirements to be sure. Whatever the case is, uh, wherever it comes from, the early Christian practice of singing, it does appear that it had a didactic function primarily and not just merely for uh, encouragement or good feeling. So, let's conclude. How were the Psalms used? Well, the New Testament seems to offer us no clear evidence for the singing of the Psalms, with the possible exception of the Hallel, as we said, which was very limited to a specific instance. Uh, but other than that, no other evidence. Number two, the Psalms were not viewed, as many uh, evangelicals wish to take them today, as a guidebook programming how we ought to worship. The Psalms were never used that way. Uh, nowhere, at least to my knowledge, does any early Christian for 500 years look at the Psalms and say, well, they did it like this in the Psalms, we need to do it like this today. That's not how they used the book. Uh, the Psalms were used for two things primarily. They were used for scriptural proof texts, to prophesy the life and career of Jesus, to prophesy the life and uh, the doctrine of the early church. They were also used as devotional literature. There's this great passage in which Tertullian is advising someone going through a hard time to read the Psalms and pretend as though the words of God are their own words. Now, it'd be about 1900 years later that Donald Whitney wrote his good little book, Praying the Bible, uh, but that is exactly what Tertullian is advising somebody to do. Open the book of Psalms and pray your way through them. It will provide emotional healing. And so the Psalms were also used, I, I guess we might say, as devotional literature. But they weren't used as material to be sung. 
at least not until you get to about the fourth century, fifth century, then they, that all changes. Uh, nor were they used to program how the early Christians viewed their worship. Um, this represents a, a lot of years of uh, research, so I probably have talked way too much about a lot of things, but you might have questions, and if so, I'll do my best to answer them. Yeah, okay, so the question is about the Psalms of Ascent, uh, which are found in, what, like Psalm 118 and following in that neighborhood. Um, and the assumption has been that these were Psalms of Ascent, Ascent meaning as we ascend to the temple in Jerusalem for worship. Um, assumptions. Yeah, we don't really know how the Psalms of Ascent were used. Interestingly, Didymus the Blind, a fourth century church father, takes the Psalms of Ascent to refer to the stages of spiritual ascent. So you master one psalm and you gain like a, you level up spiritually, like spiritual transformation is a video game, you know. And uh, so he interprets the word ascent in that way. Uh, but it is common to think of them as referring to like physical ascents. We can't substantiate that in any way. So that, I'm not sure this, that really affects it one way or another, but that's an interesting conversation about what exactly the Psalms of Ascent are for and what the word ascent means. But yeah, good question. Well, we don't really know how, we don't really know what temple worship looked like. Um, we do have rabbinic references, which are from a later time, I know, but they refer to Levitical singing of certain psalms in the context of the temple. Now, you can take that evidence and combine it with the superscriptions themselves that seem to indicate the intention to use this musically, that the Levites were performing at least some of the psalms, at least some of the time, in the temple. But outside of that, no. Okay, I have to repeat everything you're saying for the online people. So can I say that first? Uh, okay, so the comment was that uh, Brother Franklin Camp in one of his books made the same point about the 1 Corinthians 14 passage that um, Paul was in fact referring to inspired songs and then applied that also where Paul says, I will sing with the spirit and with the understanding indicating that this was a miraculous kind of worship performance. Is that fair? Okay, all right. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, the question is, in the passages in Matthew and Mark that refer to uh, the disciples singing before they went to the Mount of Olives, why does it say when they had sung a hymn, they went out, if in fact what they may have been singing is a psalm? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure that they would have been as precise with those words as we would want them to be, because again, the word psalmos itself in Greek isn't necessarily specific to a biblical psalm anyway. 
And so just using the word psalmos does not guarantee that they would be talking about a song uh, that is biblical in nature, although I, I don't know, maybe that is a point that they weren't singing the Hallel, but I don't know that. We do have lots of other evidence, by the way, if Jew, Jews did not, they weren't like hate, haters of music, okay? I want to make that point. They just didn't generally think of music as something you did to worship God. There are all kinds of examples of like a great tyrant persecuting the Jews falling, and they spontaneously break out into song which is exactly the kind of thing you have like the Song of Miriam, right, in Exodus 15, the Song of Moses, after the defeat of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, they spontaneously break out in song. You have that sort of thing in Jewish culture in the Second Temple period. You also have this reference in the book of 4th Maccabees, uh, which says, uh, it's, very, it's a passing reference, but uh, it refers to like these boys' father teaching them biblical stories with song. So they apparently did that, but again, that would be a domestic context. So Second Temple Jews apparently did like music from time to time. They just didn't think of it as a primary means of worship. Yeah, but yeah, what you say about the Hallel and that, I, I, don't, know if that, I don't know if that is a big deal or not. I, I just couldn't say, sorry. Yes? Yeah, I Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if, if any of your research looked into did they use that technique, you know, especially since it's a dream and things like that. Any evidence? I mean, it's a good point. I mean, you would think it would be awfully strange if they didn't, right? Because this gives you an opportunity to memorize large blocks of text by putting it to music. But I, I have no knowledge of any source that says that they did. And the fourth Maccabees thing is really obscure. I mean, it's kind of in passing, and it's like, you know, your daddy read you bedtime stories, basically, so go ahead and die for your faith. Um, I mean, it's just a weird passage uh, that doesn't tell us a lot. But, you know, I, I, I think the idea is a great idea. It stands to reason they would have done it, but I, I don't know that they did. Yeah, don't have evidence. Yes. So the first Corinthians fourteen twenty six thing yes. just yeah. kind of my mind blew in that moment. I'm a little dense and uneducated. So I just I'm having to read you through it. And when you were going through this research process, because knowing your ability to research and study on things, other than that Franklin Camp reference, because I'm glad you said that, were there any other things out there that were mentioning that possibility or just something you concluded? Well, I appreciate what you said about my um, research abilities, but I, I did not research that. I, I actually kind of made that up this morning on the way here. So, <laughs> full disclosure, I, um, I'm, glad, I'm glad to know that other people uh, more studied than I am thought about. Yeah, and it sounded really good, didn't it? Yeah, that was, sorry. Yeah, um, I haven't researched that, but I need to. Okay, um, I would imagine that other people have noticed that before. I wouldn't presume to think that I'm the first person to think of it, um, to be sure. But I was the first person on the ride over here to think of it. Even the lesson, the lesson word. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all the same, same problem. All right. So, uh, oh, by the way, do, do you? 
can you tell us the uh, reference, the Franklin Camp book where that, the book on the Holy Spirit is where you'll find that reference. So I'm sure he probably thought about it a little bit more than I did. <laughs> so you'll probably never have me back now that I've confessed it. <laughs> but ne- nevertheless, it, full disclosure, I don't want to pr- pretend like I know something I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You had a recommendation for a revived point to say, okay, nothing in book Israel will get Okay, so the question is uh, whenever you're surveying the Bible or you have a book that surveys the Bible, they have these quick little descriptions of what these books are. And one of the descriptions of Psalms often is this is the hymn book of ancient Israel. And since I said it's probably not, what would I put in its place? That's a good question. Uh, and I don't really know what I would say in its place. I think one of the things that we, that that probably is not healthy biblically for us to do is we treat the book of Psalms as a book, when in fact it is a collection of individual composition. And now we know that because the book tells us that, that this was not written by the same group of people at the same time. It's many compositions over many, like a thousand years or something. So, um, I'm not sure that you could characterize it in any specific way. Um, I mean, maybe you have a better idea than I do on that, to be honest. Well, actually, I think that's pretty good right there, what you just said. I think uh, just viewing it, this is Israel's great book of poetry. Um, a lot of other books, have, you know, the book of Job is pretty heavily poetic as well, but you're right as far as uh, the devotional nature of that book. It's incredibly emotional, incredibly deeply theological. So I, I feel like, yeah, that's it. There's this great statement, I didn't mention this, but in uh, the Midrash to the book of Psalms, the rabbinic commentary on the book of Psalms, the opening statement is, so as God gave the five books of Torah to Moses, so also God gave the five books of Psalms to David. Now, I know that that's not actually true because David didn't write the whole Psalms, but it does capture how they viewed it. This was a book whose primary function was didactic, not uh, to be a, a manual of worship or whatever. Yes, Yeah, that's a great question. The name psalmos indicates songs, right? I mean, that's what the word means. The word fundamentally means song. Where did that name come from? Nobody knows uh, how that name became associated. The Hebrew title is Sefer Tehillim, which means book of praises. The praises at least distances you a little bit, but not much, because praise in biblical Hebrew language is kind of usually song. So, you're, you, you bring up a good point, and I don't know how to answer it. It may be just a, a realization that these books were, or some of these psalms were sung at an earlier stage, but certainly by the time we get to within 200 years of the New Testament, that's not how the psalms are being used primarily. So, would you know, 
I've thought about this question, but not enough to really answer it. The, the question is, um, when is the first time that we see the, the label Psalm on the book of Psalms? Um, I think it probably, see, I'm going to highlight in bold the word, words I think, okay, because I, I need to do more work to be certain about this. But I think it comes from the description as a Psalm of David. The translation of Mizmor Le David in Hebrew, a Psalm of David, is a Psalm of David. So the collection, because so many of them are a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David, the collection came to be known as the Psalms, plural, of David. And then from there, the title Psalms was lifted out and applied to the whole book. That's what I think probably happened, but I don't know. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Really what God reserves in that, like the instruments and things necessary, rather than what we should do. Is that what I'm hearing? Um, I, I, the second part, I follow you. So the first part is like in Psalm 150 and other Psalms, you have reference to instrumental music and, and specifically the command to worship God with instruments of music. And then the question based on... Oh. oh, well, grammatically it's an imperative, right? So it would be a command to worship. The question is, who's following that command? Um, your emphasis today is on teaching, so that became the didactic part of the song mm -hmm. rather than the, uh, the song or the, the instrument. The, the, only, the only materials I know that bother to interpret that kind of, those kinds of statements do, the, do it in a spiritual sense and never takes the command to worship with instruments literally. Now, on the other hand, it wouldn't take the command to worship in the Psalms literally anyway, at least not in the way the Psalms present. So, um, but yeah, I don't, I wasn't even really thinking about the instrumental music question when I did any of this, but I suppose there probably are some implications uh, there. I would need to think more about Yeah, I guess it would. Um, I would say that even the ancient Jews themselves did not take those passages to be literal because they're not worshiping in the synagogues with instrumental music. So how they took those passages, I, I don't really know. Uh, it, it is interesting. I haven't, just haven't thought about the implications enough. I appreciate the question. I need to think more about that, though. Um, anybody else? Okay. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, uh, that's a good question. So the question is, in a number of cases, and in fact, one of these examples is quoted in the book of Hebrews, I think it's chapter 2, I will sing of you in the midst of the ecclesia. There's no doubt why he uses the word, because it makes the psalm sound like it's a prophecy of singing praises in the church. 
But, um, yeah, I don't know. What does the assembly mean in the book of Psalms? Is it a common assembly? Um, first of all, the idea of an assembly itself. I mean, we think of inherently the nature of a church where people come together, they're assembled together. But that's not the case for ancient Israel at all because you've got this massive temple courtyard and only so many people can fit in there anyway. And so that whole idea is a bit difficult to envision uh, for ancient Israel. Um, but I don't know. It's a good question. It could very well be the congregation of people who are actually doing the singing, which would be presumably the Levites or whomever it is, or it could be David himself talking about a celebration. This is not an act of worship. Again, remember, singing primarily for Jews is not an act of worship. It's an act of celebration of something. So maybe that's it. I, I don't know. It's a good question, though. Am I off the hook? All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, spinning that.